This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, can you transform yourself while also empowering your child? Dr. Shafali, clinical psychologist, New York Times bestseller, three times over on Oprah and so much more, joins the Shift to discuss conscious parenting and the intention behind relationships, couples, and more. Ukrainian policy expert Hannah Shalist is live in Ukraine with us for you and gives us an update from Odessa of what they're going through. Plus, are you okay with Monty Python, real pythons, and beer? Because it's Friday morning. It's all in the Shift Daily Podcast. This is the Shift Podcast. Every now and then, you get an opportunity to have a conversation with someone that you think you sort of are meant to have a conversation with. Let me explain why. First of all, our guest is Dr. Shafali. She's in New York City. Um, I'm just gonna say that your title is All Things Amazing and Human. Uh, even the psychology background and all the other things in your writing and everything that you do, conscious parenting and all that um, for Dr. Shafali is all things human and amazing. It's, it's, quite, it, it's quite delightful, it's uh, quite human and uh, inspiring. That's what you do for me. So I was introduced to your work, Dr. Shafali, because my girlfriend, Melanie, introduced me to your stuff. This is probably about three years ago. She saw you and met you, actually. I just saw the video. She just showed me the video this week. Uh, she met you at one of your events. And when we were talking about you know growth and study and all these things, she said, do you know Dr. Shafali? And back then I did not. And she said, well, you, you gotta watch this. So I started to follow your Instagram. And so I was introduced to you from one of my most trusted favorite human beings on the planet. It's always a good endorsement. Then we found this video of this kid who was being empathetic, considerate, kind, understanding, and it, it was commented on as being conscious parenting. And I said to Ryan, who is the content producer here on The Shift, I said, let's get someone for, to talk about this. This is amazing parenting to me. And then uh, your team booked. And I said to Ryan, I said, do you realize who just booked? And he's like, no, who booked? And I was like, it's Dr. Shafali. Did you reach out to Dr. Shafali? He goes, yeah, I did. I said, do you have any idea who Dr. Shafali is? Nope, no idea, he said. And I said, well, Dr. Shafali has been with Oprah and all these books and all this writing and all these wonderful things. And so that is this sort of kismet moment of everything coming together. So I'm really grateful. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, that's awesome. Glad to be here. The video of this child was inspiring to see a kid who was being kind, considerate, and empathetic in a moment. We don't often see that with children today. So mm -hmm. I really just wanted to talk to you about, you do so much for couples and you have some couples things coming up even in short order here and then with kids and everything else. Um, maybe can, you can help everyone who doesn't know you. How do you come here? How do you get to this point, Dr. Shafali? Um, <laughs> well, um, my passion for helping people and connecting with people and seeing the commonality of human suffering has really brought me here. Um, it took me to a PhD in psychology it took me to understand myself through a real 
serious practice in meditation from my early 20s. Um, it took me to becoming a mother, to realizing how deeply influential I was on my daughter in not so positive ways, to waking up spiritually and then helping others wake up spiritually. So it started from really my connection to human suffering and wanting to be instrumental in being a small part in alleviating mm. it. And since then, I've just been driven by that. It inspires me. It moves me. It hurts me. It pains me. And not that I want to change the world because no one can, but I definitely want to help those who are willing to suffer a little less to have a pathway to do that. It's a scary notion when we look at the world today from the lens of fear, isn't it? When we see what's going on, we see it's going on in couples. I'm lucky. I've been given a second chance. For me, love was that that exchange, right? That exchange of behavior, circumstance, gifts. And I've been so lucky to be given with Melanie the the gift of space. That's taught me a lot. The it taught me a lot about my kids. And the space is all she's ever asked of me is more of me. And so when someone allows you the space to find who you are and find your way, because the only thing they want is more of you, not to be different, not to change, not to go read this book so you can be smarter, but just to have more of you. That's, that to me is what I've learned that, that love looks like is space. When we give someone space, mm. what an mm. incredible notion to take that for me now to teenage children of mine and allow them space. That's a different way to look at it than we often do from parenting and our relationships. I suppose you could speak to both. Yeah. So the space, what you're saying is a space where you as an individual are allowed to be authentic, empowered, as liberated as possible, and where you feel connected with, accepted by the other. So it's mutual acceptance and allowance where you feel it, but you also give it to yourself. And because you give it to yourself, you give it to the other. What an amazing, beautiful thing that is indeed. And that is what every human wants more than anything and every child wants more than anything. Um, but we typically cannot give it to others because we don't give it to ourselves. If we valued it, in ourselves, we would 100% work hard to honor it, to value it in our children. And it, the, the harder we have to work to claim our authenticity and stay in it, the stronger and more we will uphold the other person's authenticity and capacity to stay in it. So again, the more we can do these things for ourselves, the more we will do it for others. I call that the tug of war. We often spend our lives pulling on the rope. And then we start doing it with our children. Even if you got into a very simple look at that, it's quite an unfair tug. We've got 30 years, 40 years, 50 years of experience tugging on this mm -hmm. rope with this, this, this child. 
And I often say, just drop the rope. I know that you have this um, couples thing coming up here shortly that you you like to do. And I believe it was called power struggle or, or something along those lines, but also not only just for the couples, but really all relationships and indicative of quite often what we seem to step into relationships with, right? Is that, you know, it's almost like, imagine that I walk up and I'm like, okay, Dr. Shvali, here's your end of the rope. Here's my end of the rope. And then we're both going to start to pull. And whoever wins the rope pull today, I guess, has a good day. I I don't know how that works. Or, you know, not to get overly philosophical about it, but we could just dance instead, drop the rope. Mm -hmm. Right, right. So we, because we come from so much scarcity and so much inner lack, that we want for ourselves. So we pull the rope closer to ourselves. And when we pull the rope closer to ourselves, we we destabilize the other because we need them to be in our space. We need them to do what we want. We want to puppeteer them. We want to string them along. And a relationship will never last this way. It may last for a bit, but then the rope will break. So the real essence is for two really adult whole individuals to come together and like you said, drop the rope. There, there is no binding. There is no caging. It's this beautiful dance between the two that can be so effortless and absolutely stunning if we allow for that. Having lack, I'm going to do a little bit of word salad thinking here. <laughs> Forgive me. I'm going to try to navigate it. We have a hard time, though, saying I am fulfilled. I am complete. Right? Mm-hmm. We it is so much easier for us to say, even in that I'm lacking lack, the double negative is so much easier to say than to say I am fulfilled. Cause you could say it the same way. You say they're distinctly the same and distinctly different. Lacking lack and being mm. fulfilled are two very, very different things. So you can be lacking mm. lack of love mm. or whatever. And that's a very scary notion because mm. almost like it's no feelings. That's being nothingness of blankness. And yet, right. um, it's not necessarily fulfilled. We have a hard time with both of those. So how do you take that? Because we can go in intentionally into a relationship with our children or into a relationship with our, our favorite human. And we can experience fear so distinctly differently in that mm-hmm. similar situation. How do we mm-hmm. navigate that? Mm-hmm. Right. So it's very hard for us to step into abundance because we have not been trained or conditioned to to stay there, to accept it, to see life as abundant because we were raised as children to be, and we were told that we have to do, do, do in order to get worth, in order to get belonging, that we never felt good enough. And because we don't feel good enough, we project a not good enoughness everywhere we look. And, and this is what we project onto our children and then they grow up in the same way. And that's why it's really hard for us to say I'm in abundance we can barely say, um, I'm not in lack. Like that is that is something that we can barely do just because of how we were raised. We were raised uh, with this intense feeling of not good enoughness for who it is as we are. You know, when you're in a love relationship, you want nothing more than to be accepted for who it is you are. But we were never, we were never accepted for that. And that's why we all are on this quest. To, to look for that good enoughness. It's really hard for us to find. What are you seeing with kids? I, I've noticed, and this is just observational, it's nothing scientific. I've noticed the word deserve come up an awful lot 
when people take a stand mm. for what they believe in or what they want in life, like I deserve this. And I, I struggle mm. with that one because um, the word deserve is a weird, strange one that there's some sort of ounce of entitlement. And it really only takes a little twist of, you know, worth, belonging, um, and not like you deserve it. And I find that for mm. my generation, being a Gen X guy, uh, you know, I'm 48 and my growing up was exactly like you spoke of. That's where it took me. It took me into that. I had to prove, you know, my value. So I almost had to Mm -hmm. put myself in a devalue situation in order to show I have value. Right. So I have to go from negative equity to positive equity. And then the, the young adults today seem to have this whole, I deserve something yet it, which is very similar, even though it's different. Mm -hmm. And then even younger kids Mm -hmm. today, they're, they're, these grand notions of these champagne dreams and Pepsi incomes and, and life problems. And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, it's a pendulum that seems to swing back and forth and back and forth from generation to generation, which I'm assuming is passed Mm -hmm. on from parents to kids. Yes. So this, you know, it's one thing to feel deserving of what we can give ourselves and can then seek to surround ourselves with. So I deserve respect. I seek to surround myself with respect. I deserve worth. I seek to surround myself with those who give me worth. But it's another thing to feel like you deserve better a better life situation. Like you're not better than anyone else to not get cancer. You're not better than anyone else to not be heartbroken. You're not better than anyone else to experience a fire, a house fire. So life is going to happen to you whether you are worthy or not. It's the people around you that you allow to feel deserving of, uh, but but mostly you have to deserve things for yourself and by yourself. You have to give yourself that. And most of us don't know how to give ourselves that. We we think that we should get it from others. And we, we have to be really careful because when we don't do the work on ourselves to deserve things for ourselves, then we can, you know, put this burden on others and feel very entitled. And others then feel entitled too. And then we're both begging each other to be seen, to be heard, to be understood. You've been very open, Dr. Shafali, about, you know, your growth from a young person. And then, you know, you moved and went to school and, and your, your young life um, in the East and then coming to North America and all of your growth in education and your PhD in psychology and all these things you've done. And you said it earlier, you said, you know, the being a parent and, and not necessarily passing on all the good at all the times. I mean, I was a yeller. That's what it was. Uh, I'll own it. I'll say right. and for everyone else that's out there that knows that they maybe they yell too much. That's what I was. Um, it was right. a conversation with my kids where I said, you know, what do you, what's one thing that if you could change about this, that you would change? And, uh, and that was what they said to me. And so I shared one thing with them, which was ironically listening. You can see how the, those two, you can see the, the tug of war of that rope right there. And we were able to recreate what it looks like and where it goes. For you, you've spent your whole life building this. You have a daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what was it for you that really got you from that place of, uh-oh, <laughs> in your parenting that you had to change uh, and take on just for yourself, because I, I just really want to bring it to everyone who's with us right now that they're not alone in what they're going through. We all go through this. It's nice to talk about grand notions of good parenting, but really when, when we understand that we're not alone in, I yell too much or whatever it is, 
that really helps people. What did you go through? Yeah, the same thing. I was, my daughter was three years old. I talk about this when I was probably raising my voice and I had my fangs out and frothing at the mouth, acting like a total lunatic. And I just saw her become deflated. And that was enough for me. And I knew something had to change because I did not want to be this kind of parent. I did not want to do this to my child. And um, from that day on, I, I just made a pledge to find a better way. And that's really when I realized that I was parenting her from this egoic place and not from my soul. And I, and I so wanted to parent her from, from soul. Um, and, I, and I realized that I was actually working directly against what I had envisioned. And, and I had to change ASAP. And as I began to change and understand, you know, my ego, I began to help others change as well. When you see it now, I mean, you have the evidence right in front of you, right? You are a parent. So a lot of people can write nice things and, and teach nice courses, but you're in it. Like you're in the trench of it all day, every day. What, what's one thing that you see in your family or, or with your daughter that that's the, your evidence of, holy cow, it works. Like it truly does work. I mean, obviously this works, but when you get to see it every day, what's your reminder? Um, that I'm a better parent just in my behavior, but not only that, I've healed myself because I did the inner work. Not only that, uh, I'm less stressed on a daily basis. I'm less anxious. And because of that, my daughter is less stressed and anxious. She's not being driven to you know, a nightmarish situation where she feels she has to medicate and uh, suppress her feelings. Uh, and there's peace and lightness and joy in the house. Like nobody's stressed uh -huh. out. Um, so that is the evidence in my day-to-day -day relaxed state of being. Um, I can see it. I can feel it. I, I live it. And, and what a beautiful thing that mm -hmm. is. Drama. That's what it is. I noticed there's no, there's less drama, right? It's even yes, nothing is a big yeah. deal. We, we, ha we handle it. You know, we, we, we find a way to arrive at a peaceful yeah. place. I started listening to my kids. We were in um, Costco of all places. And I remember they were misbehaving. And this, this was my wake up call actual moment of moments where I said to the kids, they were, they were not listening. And I raised my voice and I stopped and I said, you're behaving like children. Mm -hmm. Well, they were probably seven and eight or eight and nine at the time. And then I stopped and I looked right. at them and I went, you were children. <laughs> and then I children. walked away. <laughs> exactly. And I realized that as I said it out loud, I, I, the, I declared it to them and realized that I had declared it to myself and went, oh, that's exactly what you're doing. You're doing exactly what you're supposed to do. The problem here has nothing to do with you. It has to do with me and creating healthy boundaries and right. respect and all the things that need to happen in the store. This is not you. This is me. And, uh, Exactly. And what an amazing exactly. moment that um, absolutely can create for people. So you have some stuff coming up. You do all kinds of, I, I do invite everybody and I will share on our Facebook group links to your Instagram and your website, but you have lots mm -hmm. going on. Power struggle, the distinct notion of this, we often live into the ordinary balance of strong versus weak instead of the extraordinary, no antithesis of power. Power is, doesn't have an mm -hmm. antithesis. It is, or it is not. So we have strong, we have weak, or we have power. In power struggle, we often have a misnomer, and you have this conversation coming up for you. You're actually going to get into um, your work in front of other people, live audience style, 
uh, with couples. Um, where, where do you think that's going to take you? What do you see happening with most couples there? Well, I do lots of workshops and this is just one of them that you're mentioning where I bring in live couples and I do interventions right there. But uh, I have tons of courses and why I do live interventions is because we get to see our patterns in real time and get to understand who we are in real time. Um, so I do tons of, you know, intervention workshops where I can show people, you know, right there, right now, how their patterns are blocking their growth and how their patterns are causing this uh, constriction, which no one really wants. No one wants to be constricted, but yet we keep causing this constriction in our own lives. Do you have a favorite of all your courses, topics? I mean, you're a psychologist. You, your study is, the, 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 the list is very long. Um, is there a favorite for you that yeah. you love to go to that's, that, you know, that, that's really your, your love affair? Well, I have, I have many courses, but the, uh, there's one called The Awakened mm. Heart, uh, which is really special, and uh, I love mm. that one. It's called The Awakened Heart. When you Heart. look at the world, do you see it? Does it make you feel sad? Uh, it just... No, because I accept the isness of our, of our isness, and it's, uh, it's cyclical. It'll, it'll, it's fantastic at times and, and heartening, and then it's really shitty and mm -hmm. depressing. So it goes through these uh, phases. So I just know that we can just hang in there, and a new phase will come. But not that every, everything is terrible or everything is amazing. There's no such thing. Dr. Shafali's here, and I want to take you into account for only one thing and one thing only. And it's a loving kind account. You said earlier that we can't change the world. And I want you to know that I disagree. I think you already have started oh. and we might not see it for days or weeks or, or generations. You might not see it, um, for, um, for many, many years to come. But I can tell you this, that you have created an environment, um, that I've been able to observe because of Melanie's follow of you, meeting you, going to your event, and that she works on with her kids today. I get to see that. Mm -hmm. I get to be a witness to that every single day. And my invitation for you is just to consider that not only can you change the world, but it is possible that you already have. Oh, that's so sweet. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This is the Shift Podcast. The Antonov plane belonging to Russia was getting uh, repoed, if you will, um, in Canada. It's been here ever since the war started and going to be connected to Ukraine instead has caused uh, many people to wonder about the wading into the war and what comes next. And we sit here and we wonder what the political fallout will be from this move is nothing like on your weekend hearing rockets land close by. And that's where we go is to Odessa, Ukraine. Hannah Shalis is here. Dr. Hannah Shalis to join us. We have so many different amazing contacts and friends that we have in Ukraine. There was some photos of the rockets landing this weekend my ukrainian's not very good hannah but i was trying to translate with the help of google what yevgenia had posted from the videos of those rockets landing uh it was kind of an ugly scene this weekend can you help us understand 
Um, you, you know, uh, it, for me, it was quite a personal because that building that been targeted, I've been working in it for several years um, in the past. And uh, my friends still have offices in that building and my clinic is there. So, you know, Aplas University, where a lot of friends uh, studied, uh, that quarter, uh, those buildings around, that is where a lot of years of the life spent. That's why definitely talking with the people whose offices destroyed, whose medical clinic absolutely destroyed, it's very, very painful because uh, it, it's becoming closer and closer to the downtown. It's already not a suburbs. It's very central in the city. And considering that each night now we are having uh, air raids and shaheds are coming more and more, that started to be, uh, uh, again, the same feeling as we had uh, last spring. Well, let me first say that it's great to hear your voice. It's been a couple of weeks since we've had a chance to talk. And and um, I appreciate you uh, taking time to jump on with us this week. And get into that. You know, we, you are, oh, Hannah, you don't, you never cease to amaze me, my friend. You never do. Um, your, your resilience and your strength and, and your openness to share with us um, is remarkable. We were on the radio when a colleague of yours, the, the minister, uh, died in that helicopter crash in Kiev. Um, and, um, you know, the, these, these are, I don't want to say near misses. I feel like that diminishes the point, but these are very close calls to you and to your network of very close, trusted colleagues, peers, and friends. Um, how are you doing? Uh you know, that, that is the uh, psychology of the uh, people where definitely partially the whole country is traumatized, but at the same time you're living in these conditions for one and a half year. And uh, staying in Odessa, I still feel myself very uh, privileged compared to my friends who are staying in Kharkiv or even to those relatives who are uh, still in Kiev because we are still uh, under the last uh, our attack. And uh, we're still in the more or less normal life being, or at least better to say that we are trying to have as much as possible of our normal life being. Definitely, it's not the same as what we had two summers ago. And now uh, there are more and more evidences of the war coming uh, and consequences of the war because uh, that uh, uh, tragedy of the Kakhovka Dam when Russians exploded, one of the biggest dam. Uh, try to imagine we are 140 kilometers, but being on the weekend at my summer house, the whole beach is now full of fridges, sofas, uh, oh, wow. different briefs, uh, um, reed islands from the um, from there. And you know that is that's not attack like that. You are afraid from the air. Uh, Hannah Shalist is our guest in Kiev, Ukraine, and you know the connection does come and go a little bit with this one. Uh, excuse me, in Odessa, Ukraine, this one does come and go, and so it's sometimes hard to connect. We lost you there on that last thought. You were telling us about the condition of the beach. Yes, I said that, like, you know, uh, when it is the uh, air raid or something coming from the up, that is one feeling. Like, you know, you're afraid, you understand what it is. But that appears that when uh, all of these came from the Kachovka Dam, when we started to see these tremendous consequences for environment, for the social being... Uh, this is the conversation about the dam that's in Ukraine. We'll give this another shot here, and if we have to phone to kill on the phone, we'll do that next. 
uh, Hannah will uh, will continue in this conversation. Two weeks ago was when that dam blew up, and the amount of water that has flooded so many different places has very much uh, been impactful of everything that's gone on in and around Ukraine. Uh, Hannah Shalist is our guest from uh, from Odessa, Ukraine. We're going to get her on the phone here, make sure we get that connection working. Also, she might just pop into the Zoom call, depending on what goes on. The reality is, is that this connection to Odessa has been inconsistent at the best of times. And uh, it's very telling, I think, of everything that, that has been going on in and around there. The story in Canada has been very clear, though. This aircraft, the Antonov aircraft, which is quite a fascinating story in itself, uh, is going to be given to Ukraine, and what is the impact going to be on Canada? You know, we is it going to draw Canada deeper into this this conflict as opposed to being supportive from uh, the outside? Now, for the first times that we've seen so far this spring, the Ukrainians have been incredibly quiet about any counteroffensive. And Hannah, you were telling us about the flood, and since the flood and the, the the bombing of the dam has happened, one of the observations I've made, and this is, you know, you and Yevgenia and your colleagues that we talk to, plus I, I sort of inherit on Twitter your your friends because of, you know, the likes and the shares and everything else, I sort of get to see your network. Um, there's been an awful lot more posts in Ukrainian. And what that every time I've noticed that happen is usually when the information or the timing is so compressed that there's so much information coming out all at once that I find that uh, Ukrainians are sharing it in Ukrainian and don't really have time to share it in English so uh, availably as they, they do when it's not so busy. Is that a fair observation from the outside that there's just more information these days coming faster? Um, it, it's difficult to say because definitely everybody uh, are expecting a uh, certain type of the uh, uh, counteroffense and the actions. But at least with the Twitter, you need to understand that the last month, Twitter intentionally uh, started to degrade uh, all tweets in English about Ukraine. So as soon as you have anything, and the IT specialists already confirmed it, uh, all the tweets about Ukraine already for a few months has been degraded and all accounts being shadowed. Uh, but also in addition to this, when the Kahovka happened, because uh, Elon Musk unfortunately took the position and he's been a retweeted um, uh, uh, Tucker with all his conspiracy theories, but not the real information from the United Nations or others. And we also noticed that any news, any pictures about the Kahovka dam uh, being receiving just few viewership compared if you post a kitten or something like this at the same account. So that's definitely intentionally uh, done to shadow all Ukrainian accounts uh, or, or writing in English, or even my um, the foreign journalists who've been tweeting about this from the ground, they also said that tremendously lower as soon as you uh, post something from the conflict zone. Now we are seeing, um, uh, you know, th- these reports, at least on the BBC, that, you know, your President Zelensky says the counteroffensive has begun. Uh, maybe not this big wall of the classic sort of as we saw world war ii blitzkrieg of a whole bunch of stuff moving quickly and trying to steamroll over everybody but some really strategic stuff what are you seeing and what are you hearing in ukraine that we need to know about uh, definitely, as uh, we use the phrase here, the counter need uh, silence if you would like to be successful. 
and uh, uh, that's why there was not so much news coming. We know only when the certain villages already liberated, and uh, for the last few days, ten villages been reported as liberated in different parts in eastern and in southeastern parts of uh, Ukraine. But we can say that the uh, counteroffensive is still in the preparatory uh, phase, uh, so it's not that full-fledged uh, counteroffensive yet happening. Why? Because we need to cut Russians from the supply. Uh, they are bigger in this way. Yeah, they are numeric, so we need to cut any type of the supply. Uh, we need to push them, and it is a tactic of the needles. You know, when you attack in many different directions. So first of all, to distract the enemy, so they don't know where the bigger counteroffensive would come. And the second, to test their defense, where their defense is weaker. That's why here we more or less agreed that we are still in this uh, semi-preparatory phase, even that definitely in some directions, uh, like still around Bakhmut, uh, in the Zaporizhia direction, we have quite a heavy fighting each day. Uh, it is uh, so fascinating uh, to see some of those photos and the destruction that comes. Now, you recently traveled. And you were, I like the pictures, by the way, I was <laughs> commenting on your pictures of you guys. Um, when you go to these conferences, and I don't understand your foreign affairs, political science, all of the things that you academics, PhDs go and talk about at these things. I really don't. And I was hoping you could uh, help us understand, like, what is that? Has the tone changed when you go and academics come together and, and you're advocating for Ukraine, but at the same time, deep into conversation, what, what does that, where do you go and what does that sound like in conversation for, you know, PhDs and people like you to get together and, and try to change the course of this? You know, for me, that is quite funny because for the last probably 10 years, I haven't been at any proper academic conference. Oh. It's a little bit difficult, especially during the war, for me to be at the uh, very academic events because a lot of the colleagues are still trying to say, oh, you shouldn't be emotional about your war. You shouldn't speak about moral or the principles. Let's talk about the theories, how it's possible to do to find the peace. And honestly, that is impossible because mm -hmm. the academy in some countries, especially in some European countries, became extremely immoral in terms of being afraid to take sides when it is the uh, clear violation of the international law. So that's why, you know, to speak about theories, when you have the exact practice of what you're doing and being far from the reality, I don't think that it is uh, useful. However, the conferences that we are going with Evgenia, that is uh, uh, more of the policymaking uh, events. Like the Shangri-La that we've been in the beginning of the world, that is the biggest defense forum of uh, Asia, where 40 ministers of defense uh, from the U.S. and Canada to Singapore, Japan, and Australia took uh, part, and experts, analysts as us uh, joining, because there are, we can be with PhDs, but there is a huge amount of the analysts who are working with the stakeholders, trying to change the politics, trying to explain the politics, trying to adjust, to find scenarios, to explain what is happening. And here, you know, that's also quite an interesting because some of them, like Riga event, that's about strategic communications. We tried to learn the lessons from the Ukrainian strategic communications during the war, explaining that it's not only all those good things that you're thinking about us, but let's uh, talk where Ukraine failed because the global south is still 
cannot understand that it is Russian aggression. They still don't buy that it is anti-colonial war from the Ukrainian side. So how to change it? Uh, or in uh, Singapore, we needed to debunk a lot of, of the so-called peace plans coming from the neutral and non-aligned states like uh, Minister of Defense of Indonesia absolutely shocked us when he said that we need to conduct a referendum at the disputed territories in Ukraine. Luckily, we had a chance to have a word against him and ask him what type of the disputed territories you are going to have the uh, uh, referendum when we don't have. We have occupied territories, and before Russia invaded, nobody disputed the territories uh, of our right. country. And that is important because when it is just peer-to-peer, meaning like minister against the minister, it is the political conversation. When others involved in this and can speak with the different words and raise different uncomfortable questions to the politicians, that's very important. Well, it echoes of Czechoslovakia in World War II, doesn't it? When you talk about it that way, these other countries from the outside that don't seem to have much of an interest sort of negotiating some sort of future that isn't even accurate to the situation of what happened. You would think if these are going to be people that are learning from history that, I mean, I'm not educated in this. I'm not a Ph.D., Hannah. That seems blatantly obvious to me. Uh, yes, but you know, the question is that, okay, when somebody is extremely pro-Russian and bluntly pro-Russian, that's easy. Because here you know the set of the arguments. But then you currently have a lot of Indian Africa counterparts who are presenting it as they are coming with the uh, uh, best intentions, you know. As you are coming with the best ideas of uh, um, peace in Ukraine, bringing peace and everything like this. And then what they propose inside, that's what is becoming dangerous. And here you don't know sometimes how to um, talk or operate with these uh, people because they bring their logic. They are ready to surrender and they say that, okay, but you need uh, peace because people are dying. Why you don't want to negotiate? And uh, uh, luckily, we have our partners, like in Singapore, it was the uh, um, uh, Borrell, the head of the Foreign Affairs of the European Union, who said, yes, but we need not just peace. We need just peace. We need peace where mm. the perpetrator, where aggressor is punished. And that is absolutely different. So, you know, that is, it's not scholastic. There is sometimes just an extremely different um, worldview of people. Mm-hmm. Well, that humanity always comes back into it. I mean, like you said, when we started this this particular topic, you know, how do you not be emotional and go into this pragmatically or, you know, I think the implication is professionally. And yet um, it always comes back to the humanity of it anyway. So that seems wildly ineffective, frankly, and reckless to not be taking the humanity into it from the very beginning because every combina- every conversation seems to turn to the humanity of it all anyway. Yes, but you know, that is interesting that sometimes it's really words matter, how you call different things. And, uh, for example, we notice and we are now trying to fight against using the expression Ukrainian war. And a lot of politicians, even of the friendly countries, are using this Ukrainian war, Ukraine war. And we're mm-hmm. insisting that is not Ukrainian war. It is Russian-Ukrainian war or Russian aggression, Russian in uh, 
like use other words because if you name it Ukrainian war, some English speakers to say, yeah, but we just define territory. No, you're not defining territory. You are excluding the aggressor and the second part to this uh, war. And in this way, you are um, clearing them a little bit. And, uh, you know, people are not thinking about these things uh, sometimes. The same with the uh, um, humanity. What does it mean peace? Does it mean just the ceasefire? Or does it mean all other stuff? What you include in this word and uh, how you propose this? What does it mean neutrality? What does it mean, like, can you be just neutral uh, when you see the uh, such a gross violation and uh, war crimes? Uh, when you take a side in such case, are you stopping to be neutral or you're just taking the side of the international law and rule of law and human rights? Or the same as when we are coming to Africa and speaking about protection of human rights, democracy, wherever in Ukraine, it doesn't touch their hearts. But when we start speaking about that Russians are breaking the rules-based order, that the big state can attack without any punishment, the small state, that immediately resonates for them. uh, If we would go from an academic point of view, that would be the same things we're talking about. But coming to different audience with this different wording, it can either touch them or bring absolute misunderstanding of what is happening. When I hear how clear that is, when history looks back on this, if the language is loose, if you will, uh, history will, will be present to loose language, and then the whole point sort of uh, gets lost. Dr. Hannah Shalis joins us from Odessa in Ukraine. Um, all of the serious politics aside, the one question that we do get asked here regu- to, regularly, it might not be the humanity of it, it might be the canine, canine-inity, that's not a word, of it. Um, how's Benjamin? He started to be afraid of the attacks. You know, for one year he was absolutely okay, but now that he is so funny when in the middle of the night, not opening his eyes, he's going to the bathroom because it is the most secure place in the house and mm-hmm. continuing sleeping there. And that, that really touches the hearts because he understands that the war has absolutely equal negative effect for the human beings and for our um, smaller brothers and sisters. Yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, Hannah, I thank you for, you know, uh, being in contact and being available every time I say hello and for responding through all of the busy and all the things that are going on in your world. I appreciate the understanding personally. I appreciate the connection personally. And the example that you set for us and help us understand what's going on is just invaluable. Thank you so much. Always glad to join you. This is the Shift Podcast. Are you? Are you? Are you? Okay. 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 Are you okay with? 877-399-9898. Text us your thoughts on the stories that make you ponder. Are you okay with? Monty Python. All right, Demi. You're from Manchester originally. How does that mm-hmm. land for you, the Monty Python? Um, oh, it's so shameful to say I haven't seen it. Well, see, that's what I was curious because yeah. demographically it's older, right? Um, and it's not like it's classic sketch comedy and all of those things, but it's been some of the sayings and phrases and notions about it um, are so iconic, but 
I was curious because when you were young, 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 you know, you were in the UK and yeah. then you came to Canada. So, you know, is that a thing that crosses your path? Is it something that your aunts and uncles talk about? Like, is it even a big deal or? Oh, yeah. Yeah. My mom talks about it all the time. Loved it. References it. Thinks it's hilarious. But never told us to watch it. So, and so we never did. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Isn't it, um, isn't it like slapsticky comedy though? Like. Some of it, you know, some of it is, some of it's, um, you know, like the knight is not on a horse. He's on like a, a broomstick horse thing. Mm. I don't know what you call that. Um, you know, they, like there's so much of it. It's, it's not slapsticky, all of it in that trip and fall three stooges, like that physical comedy slapstick. Mm. But it, again, there is certainly elements of it. Um, for me, it was, I don't know. It was just never something that really landed for me as being, I, I think I get it because of the joy that it brings so many other people, but I don't think that I, it's really for me, but you know, people know the, some of the most iconic phrases like, uh, bring out your dead, uh, the bit from the Holy Grail. I'm not dead. What? Nothing. Here's your nine pence. I'm not dead. Yeah. He says he's not dead. Yes, he is. I'm not. He isn't? Well, he will be soon. He's very ill. I'm getting better. No, you're not. You'll be stone dead in a moment. Oh, I can't take him like that. It's against regulations. I don't want to go on the car. Oh, don't be such a baby. I can't take him. I feel fine. Well, do us a favour. Isn't there something you can do? I feel happy. I feel happy. <laughs> oh, thanks very much. Not at all. See you on Thursday. Right. Uh, the thing about Monty Python sketches... Um, it it's it was everything that everybody else wished they would say that might have been gone going through it was the sense of humor that nobody else would really do like bring out your dead and and those mm -hmm. kinds you know kinds of things this other text comes in um who is that from i think is that from glenny want to make sure yeah um monty python is our family's favorite movies from my oldest son in his mid-30s to my younger son in his early 20s you know so it's a, it's kind, it's just a sense of humor. I think that really lands with yeah. some people. Yeah, I feel like they were shaming me a little bit there. Like, oh, early twenties, early thirties. Yeah, a little bit. No, I don't think that was oh, about no. you. <laughs> Did you want to talk about? It's always that? about me. No. I'm just <laughs> now it seems uh, like sometimes "Are You Okay?" is uh, a bit of a Python sketch in itself. Uh, but this one is very real, this particular story. A 76-year-old woman in Ecuador was found breathing inside her coffin during her own wake. So just like the sketch itself of Bring Out the Dead, No, He's Fine, No, I'm Alive, Bella Montoya, a retired nurse from Ecuador, was previously declared dead on Friday after she suffered a possible stroke and cardiac arrest. She was already unconscious when her family brought her to the hospital. She did not respond to resuscitation. On Friday, after 20 of Montoya's friends and family spent about five hours standing around the coffin at her wake, they began to hear a strange noises coming from inside, including knocking. This is like my worst nightmare, by the way. In a since viral video from the wake, mourners can be seen as they quickly opened the casket and found Montoya struggling to breathe inside. When paramedics arrived, Montoya, who looked gaunt and pale, was lifted onto a stretcher and immediately rushed to the same hospital that had pronounced her dead. First of all, you'd be like, nope, we're not going there, you'd think. Her you son really told, wouldn't, right? Right? You would be like, nope, Even... we want a new doctor. 
her son told several local media outlets on Monday that his mother was in the intensive care unit. After all this, by the way, the Associated Press reported Montoya's situation is dire. Though her current condition is not known, the Ministry of Public Health said Montoya is unstable, according to CBC News. Uh, Wow. Ecuador's Ministry of Public Health has established a committee and launched an investigation into all of this. Alongside the country's Health Services Quality Assurance Agency, investigation will perform a medical audit. Maybe they should do a non-medical audit to determine who is responsible for wrongfully declaring her dead. The audit will also examine the hospital's processes for issuing death certificates. Um, so I want to think of this one from a few different lenses. The first lens of clearly is Ms. Montoya. So this to me challenges the notion of, do you want to be buried or cremated? Because if you're wake up, right? Yeah. And you're in the box. What, which would you prefer? Would you prefer? Cause there's one, there's a movie where that happens, right? Where he wakes up inside the boxes. It's going into the cremation chamber. I don't want a movie. It is. I've blocked it out. I'm sure it's traumatic. And, um, Oh my God. Did you actually just text that in Glennie? She earned to get out. Oh man. Um, the, the, but if you get buried in the box underground, I mean, people have done that joke. They've, they've played police speakers in the coffin and said to the, you know, to that one favorite nephew, like, okay, this is what you, when I die, you got to play this from Bluetooth on your phone from the coffin, right? Like, yeah. this has been a joke people have done. And yet it happened in real life. But if you're going into the cremation chamber, that's different. But then if you're buried underground, oh my God, like, I'm sorry. That's terrifying. I mean, it is, but you would hope that you could trust people to declare you dead or not when it all comes down to it. Yeah. I mean, how do you get that wrong? Clearly. How, though? I don't know. <laughs> the <laughs> medical audit's going to... This can't be the first time it's happened. And the... um, But does it change your mind? Like, cremation, no, burial? No, I would still just want to be put on fire. That's it. Light it up, eh? Light it up. If I wasn't oh dead God, before, not... I would be afterwards. That's for sure. Well, that's just it, right? Mm. You, you wouldn't. You wouldn't be in this situation. Um, bloody hell, cat says I'd be a bit unstable too if I'd been shut in a coffin for five days. I think it was three days, but I think your point still stands, cat. <laughs> um. This is terrible. Like these are Monty Python people that are sending these in. I'm <laughs> sure of it because of the jokes that are coming in, but that's like absolutely the worst. That just bothers me. Ooh, it gives me shivers. Oof. Thinking about it. I can't even do it anyway. Um, terrifying. I think we all agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 All right. Not something I'd want to try. No, no, I'm not okay with that. Are you okay with Pythons. Mm-hmm. Actual pythons, like python pythons, not funny ones. Um, I mean, I, I'm i okay with snakes. They don't bother me too much. But I'm sure if there was like a python like lunging at me, I probably wouldn't love it. Would you ever have a pet snake? I don't think I'd have a pet snake because I've read a lot of stories about snakes laying beside you and sizing you up to eat you. Mm-hmm. But 
I would, uh, I've like held snakes and stuff. Doesn't bother me. Really? Have any friends yeah. with snakes? Like those weird ones? I can talk to them like Harry Potter. <laughs> uh, that's fascinating to me. Um, I think snakes are creepy because they don't have legs. I just think that's weird. Um, and they can move. So not sure if the snake in this story is a python, but it was a stretch. And Ryan put these two together because it was a snake story. This one was found in Australia. And every time we love Australia, that we go to Australia, there is one thing that we have to do and we have to celebrate it. Just drive from town to paradise and you'll see why we call Australia Since it seems to be that we're knocking off a couple of my worst nightmare scenarios between um, not being dead in a coffin and being buried to going to the bathroom and having a creepy crawly come out of the toilet. And Ozzy was trying to enjoy a wee bathroom break. Get it? When uh, he was rudely interrupted by, you guessed it, a giant snake. Well, erratic reptile has scared the living daylights out of an Oxenford resident. The man in his 20s was sitting on the toilet when he saw this curious critter descending from the bathroom heat lamp. Hudson's snake catching stepping in and safely rehoming the python here. Uh, rehoming it. That's interesting terminology. That was from Nine News in Straya. Turns out the snake was a python, a 10-foot python, in fact. Anthony Jackson from Hudson Snake Catching <laughs> posted... Have you ever watched those creepy crawly capture shows from, like, southern U.S. where they capture possums and stuff like that? Have you ever seen those shows? No. It's really funny. Jono, have you seen those shows? Yeah, I have. They're, they're I forget downright what they were hilarious. Called. There's also, I saw another viral video of this guy in Toronto trying to get a bunch of raccoons off of a person's back porch. And he was just taking a stick and tapping it, and the raccoons were going out <laughs> one by one. I just, I don't, I find, like, there's something incredibly redneck about some of those shows. That's That's all I think of. I think about this guy who's got his pickup truck that's all beat up, and his family is... What is that show called? I used to watch it religiously. It was so awesomely terrible or terribly awesome. I don't know. Anyway, um, Anthony Jackson from Hudson Snake Catching posted photos to Facebook showing the coastal carpet python perched atop the shower door frame just underneath the light. Quote, I don't have the accent. I can't do it. Sorry. Oh, I can do it. Can you? Can you do the line here for the quote? Can you do the straight? Australian accent. Um, can I though? Oh, let me see. Where is the after quote? I stopped? After I stopped, it's like the third one down there. It's right in the middle. Oh no! See now, I feel like I've been put on the spot. Yeah, because the words are different, right? They're not your words. I... You can use your <laughs> words. The after I stopped having it. Oh, okay, wait. Yeah. After I stopped having a laugh for a few minutes, I got off. I got the hook and I took it down, and then it was cranky. Yeah, this is pretty good. That's amazing. <laughs> Absolutely impressive. And they're not even your words. Uh, that's what Jackson told uh, news.com.au. 
Jackson said the snake was apparently upset about being removed from the heat emanating from the light. The snake catcher said he avoided being bitten by the agitated snake and managed to get it into a pillowcase for safe transport into the wild. You know, nothing makes me feel more safe when there's a 10-foot python around than a good quality pillowcase. Got to tell you. Same. Right? Same. It was probably silk. (laughs) High standards, huh? Mm-hmm. like that. Okay. Uh, I don't think this one has anything to do with snakes. Are you okay with beer kegs? I feel like, I feel like Demi's like probably a shotgun expert. Do you? I do. I feel like there's probably this hidden side of Demi night where it's like she can shotgun a beer faster than anybody. Oh no, you would be severely disappointed. Really, eh? I I don't I hate beer. Mm. So yeah, we're never you couldn't pay me to shotgun a beer, but I can drink myself like you know, like a Vizzy or like a vodka soda. Yeah. I can shotgun those. See? Yeah. 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 Okay. See, there is I I knew there was a pro drinker over there somewhere. (laughs) Um, I'm not big into beer. I do like beer from time to time, but beer kegs, I have a keg tap on my back deck. I just happen to buy kegs of cider mm. instead. So yeah, I would recommend I love that, cider. Yeah. See, dry cider, yeah. ice cold day. I used to have this thing when I was in my trailer, it was in my trailer, uh, when I was like camping trailer, but I sold the trailer and I kept the, the beer keg because there is nothing better than an ice cold glass of mm. cider and you just pull a little tap 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 a roo and oh, yeah. uh fill it up it's heavenly did you ever do a keg stand with cider no no uh. i don't have to it's i own the keg i own the keg tap i own the everything so it's just i do whatever i want i can lie underneath it and do a homer simpson if i wanted to <laughs> that'd be all right uh beer kegs ryan says belong in bars and frat houses or on my back deck, Alice Cider. Not on the side of the road, but here we are with a story about a beer keg. A semi-truck in Michigan rolled over this week, sending hundreds of beer kegs onto the road. It happened just after 5 this morning on westbound I-94 east of Sargent Road. Police say the 62-year-old semi-driver took a curve too fast and lost control running off the interstate. The semi catching fire The driver was the only occupant and wasn't hurt. The semi-trailer is owned by Raves Associate, an Ann Arbor-based beer and wine wholesaler. Now, that's from NBC10. Nobody was injured, and fortunately, no beer was spilled or injured either. I don't know if it's a sad part of the story or if it's part of the victory of the story, but every single one of those kegs was empty. No Mm. damage. Womp womp. Well, imagine for everybody who found them, they're like, let's go look. Right? It'd be like when money comes out of a car in a robbery movie and everyone's trying to scoop up their hundreds. You get there and you're like, there's beer kegs on the side of the road. Woo! No, empty. But are the, are the beer kegs expensive or is the beer the most expensive thing? Like the keg itself, if you they're got expensive. to nab one of those, see? Well, there's a deposit. They take a deposit on them, usually 30 bucks or 50 bucks deposit, typically when you okay. buy a keg depending on the size of the keg. And then when you, and what kind of tap it is, there's a couple of different taps. There's a domestic tap, like a North American tap and a Euro tap, because that's the way things work differently. And so when you pay for, when you go pay for your keg, 
you give them an extra few bucks and then right. you the deposit and some people have made uh, a habit of stealing empty kegs to try to get the deposit back but usually you have to have the receipt from original purchase to they mark it off that you so you can't do that so much but yeah expensive though nice to get the deposit See? back after yeah yeah plus kegs hello that's Just awesome a cool decoration to have in your house you should and don't have empty ones because that's not good you got to keep them full um they don't last forever that's one thing and taking them in the trailer and all the movement was never good when it was beer mm. but keeping them cold was never never a real problem and um you know on ice and the cool part about it for those who are wondering how can you have a portable keg tap that's not just one of those keg pump things mm. is um inside the cooler there's like 50 feet of stainless steel tube inside a, co a cooler filled with ice. So by the time that mm -hmm. the beer cider gets through that tiny little steel, ice cold frozen tube, oh, it is so good. What an educational Damn. show this is. Isn't it though? Yeah. We're trying to keep it highbrow here. We really are. We're not doing a very good job, but we're learning things and it's all about beer. That makes us happy. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.